Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 9, Episode 5. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Christopher Gideon, about roiled routines, chilling closets, and vicious vulpines. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low... And settle in. The show is about to begin. (laughs) 
Every day is a wonderful day for Mr. Venin. He wakes up, eats breakfast, and goes on his daily routine. Everything is perfectly fine and dandy, except for the morning he wakes up and notices something in town is different. Nobody else seems to notice it, but in our first story from Christopher Gideon, but maybe, just maybe, there's a good reason for that. Without further ado, I present to you a wonderful day. Mr. Vannon had a wonderful day. He woke up at 5 a.m., said his morning prayers, and cooked himself a full breakfast, complete with fried eggs, sausage, and bacon. At 10 a.m., after a short nap in his favorite armchair, he grabbed his cane, put on his fleece hat, wool mittens, and a cashmere overcoat, and opened his front door. He walked two miles east to the church where his wife was buried. He sat in the snow at her grave, talking to her for about an hour, before leaving a single yellow marguerite daisy atop her tombstone, taking the one he'd left the previous day and saying goodbye for the afternoon. He stopped at his favorite pub along the way home for a Reuben sandwich. The chef already had the sandwich prepared for him by the time he walked through the door. He ate his lunch leisurely, left a generous three-pound tip, and finished his walk home. When he got home, he hung up his coat, hat, and mittens up to dry, started a fire in the fireplace, and took a nap in his second favorite armchair, enjoying the warmth of the flames. He woke up at 5 p.m., made himself some beans for dinner, and after washing the dishes, he said his evening prayers and went to bed. A wonderful day indeed. Mr. Vannon had a wonderful day. He woke up at 5 a.m., said his morning prayers, and cooked himself a full breakfast, complete with fried eggs, sausage, and bacon. At 10 a.m., after a short nap in his favorite armchair, he grabbed his cane, put on his fleece hat, wool mittens, and a cashmere overcoat, and opened his front door. Something was wrong. Something was different. Mr. Vannon had grown up in Sturfbid. It was a quiet little town with cobblestone streets and chiseled brick houses and tiny little markets to buy fresh vegetables and meats. Nothing ever was different. But he'd gone on this walk every day for almost ten years now. He knew it very well, and something was different. He fumbled for his glasses. Slipping them on with a trembling hand, he squinted and examined the landscape more closely. It didn't take him long to see what was wrong. There was something new, a tower. It was the tallest building in town, just slightly taller than the church steeple but it had never been there before. He was sure of it. Mr. Vannon huffed and hobbled out into the snow. He wasn't going to let this interfere with his daily routine. He walked two miles east to the church where his wife was buried. He sat in the snow at her grave, talking to her for an hour, most about the tower, before leaving a single yellow marguerite daisy atop her tombstone, taking the one he'd left the previous day and saying goodbye for the afternoon. He stopped at his favorite pub along the way home for a Reuben sandwich. The chef had already had the sandwich prepared for him by the time he walked through the door. "'You okay, Ernest?' the chef asked as he handed the plate over. 
You look like you've got something on your mind. No, no, not at all, Mr. Vannon asserted. The chef raised an eyebrow and leaned his greasy hands on the counter in front of him. You sure? he pressed. I, well, I suppose, well, it's a silly question, but have you ever seen a tower just on the north side of Sturfbud? The chef cocked his head curiously and looked out the south-facing window. Nah, I can't say as I have, he admitted. Why, have you? No, no, don't be absurd. Mr. Vannon forced a chuckle. We've never had a tower here. Why should I see one? Ridiculous. Now leave an old man to eat his lunch in peace, would you? He ate his lunch in a hurry, forgetting to leave a tip as he left, and finished his walk home. When he got home, he started a fire in the fireplace and sat down in his second favorite armchair, still in his hat and coat, and took a nap. He woke up at 5 p.m., made himself some beans for dinner, and, leaving his dirty dishes on the table, he said his evening prayers and went to bed. A curious day, but a wonderful day nevertheless. A wonderful day indeed. Mr. Vannon had a wonderful day. He woke up at 8 a.m., said his morning prayers, and cooked himself a full breakfast, complete with fried eggs and beans. At 9 a.m., he grabbed his cane, put on his fleece hat, wool mittens, and a cashmere overcoat, and opened his front door. There it was, off to his left on the north side of Sturfbud. Standing boldly against the sky was the tower. It was taunting him, mocking him. Attican, wait, he grumbled. He'd seen her at the same time every day since the day she was buried. She could wait a few hours longer than usual today while he investigated the tower. He needed to prove to himself that it was real. He walked north instead of east this time. The old school building was up this way. He used to follow this same pavement every weekday morning when he was younger. Today it had been converted into a family resource center. Vaccines for children, special ed care, Sunday school, and the like. As he passed the old building, he saw all the windows lined with strings of colorful Christmas lights. Only one office light was on. The building was mostly empty. As he neared the mysterious tower, he walked past the first house he'd bought on his own. He was only 17 years old at the time and had worked hard for the money. 1,500 pounds cash paid on the spot. The whole block had since been torn down and replaced with an apartment complex, leasing for £899 a month. It didn't seem like anyone wanted to take that offer. The place always seemed barren. Just a few blocks away from his destination, Mr. Vannon saw the factory he'd spent his whole life working at. He started at the telephone assembly line, but by the time he'd retired at 65, he'd become CEO of the company. With the rise of cell phones in the early 2000s, the next CEO only lasted two years before the company went out of business. The building now sat abandoned, slowly being destroyed by nature and vandals alike. Finally, after almost two hours of walking through the slushy snow, Mr. Vannon found himself at the foot of the tower. This used to be the site of a hospital. He was sure of it. But now, not only was the hospital gone, but all the homes around it were gone as well. It was all overgrown fields. 
He admitted he hadn't been here since his knee replacement seven years ago. But that was a lot of change, even for seven years. Mr. Vannon took a closer look at the tower itself. There was no way it had just been constructed the previous day, even if it was possible to build a tower overnight. The stone was cracked and old and had clearly been worn down by years of rain and wind. Some spots were covered in ivy. Windows were broken up and down its face as if vandals had already hit this place, too. It was hard to tell what the tower was supposed to be exactly, but it reminded Mr. Vannon of a clock tower he'd seen on holiday in Germany, just without the clock. Mr. Vannon hobbled over to the front doors. They looked like they were made of solid oak, adorned with spirals along the edges. A curved cement archway covered the entrance with the words, Fugfewer Tower, carved in ornate lettering across the front. He took off his mittens and ran his hand along the iron door handles, and they were cold to the touch, and the rough surfaces served as a testament to the years of weather they'd endured. And, as he found out by giving them a gentle push, the doors were unlocked. He peeked inside. It was dark and looked to be sheathed in a thick coat of dust. Hello, Mr. Vannon called. His voice echoed for an uncomfortably long time. Curiously, he entered the building and shut the door behind him. As he did, dozens of oil lamps scattered across the walls, lit up on their own, all at once, illuminating the inside of the tower. Now that he could see the interior, Mr. Vannon realized how much this resembled an old hotel. The floors were checkered with white and black tile, now cracked and covered in dust. There was a reception desk across from the entrance with a little bell still resting on the front waiting to be rung for service. Cobwebs stretched from every side of the desk with the floor and wall closest to it. Behind the desk was a shelf of little cubbies, each with a number underneath. Off to the sides of the desk were sweeping marble staircases that rose to the second floor. Mr. Bannon climbed up one on the right, every clack from his cane echoing like a firework in the night. At the top of the stairs, the marble floor transitioned to soft red carpeting decorated with golden swirls. The walls were covered in peeling yellow wallpaper, only being held up in places by brass plaques engraved with directions nailed into the walls. As he faced the plaque labeled Staircase to Floors 2 through 8, a loud mechanical sound suddenly pulled him back to reality. It started with a loud clang, but was followed by a constant whirring. Mr. Vannon spun around to face the center of the landing. Where he was sure there had been a plain yellow wall before, there was now a metal gate guarding an empty shaft, a lift. He watched in amazement as the brightly lit car came into view behind the gate. Someone was in it. Mr. Vannon almost greeted the figure, but its jarring appearance startled him into silence. It was shorter than he was, and cloaked in a thin black cloak from top to bottom. He couldn't see any facial features under the hood, only shadows. The diamond-shaped holes between the bars and the gate condensed as it slid open. The figure stood perfectly still for a few moments. Mr. Vannon slowly began inching toward the grand staircase down toward the lobby, 
hoping the figure wouldn't see him. He barely made it three steps before the figure suddenly popped out of the car and flew toward him with unbelievable speed. He shouted feebly, closed his eyes, and threw his cane in the air. He felt an icy, cold gust of wind pierce through him, pushing him off balance. He opened his eyes just in time to see his collision with the marble staircase. He tumbled all the way down to the bottom before stopping cold on the dusty towel floor. He stood up as quickly as his weak knees would allow him and limped toward the front door. But the front door was gone. Not locked. Gone. It was just a plain white wall now directly across from the reception desk. Even the windows had disappeared. Mr. Vannon quickly looked up the staircase and was somewhat relieved to see no sign of the shadowy figure. Instead, though, there was someone else standing behind the reception desk. A young man wearing a scarlet vest over a white dress shirt with dark slacks to complete the look. Well, what is happening? Hmm. Mr. Vannon demanded, answer me. The receptionist suddenly jumped to life like he was an animatronic theme park attraction that only spoke when the information button was pressed. Hello, Mr. Vannon, he said with an obnoxiously cheerful face. We've been expecting you. It's a wonderful day, isn't it? A wonderful... expecting me? Who are you? I don't know you, young man. Explain me this instant. The receptionist chuckled. Oh, Mr. Vannon, you're always such a laugh. Stop this right now, the old man screamed. The receptionist closed his eyes and burst into laughter, somehow cackling without moving anything except his jaw. As the sound of laughter grew more intense, Mr. Vannon yelled in anger, shoving the little bell off the desk. I'll find my own way out, thank you, Mr. Vannon shouted over the ruckus. He started walking up the stairs again, but he took one last look at the receptionist. He'd opened his eyes again. They were glowing a radiant red, too bright to even look into. More disturbing, though, was the fact that the receptionist's body hadn't moved, but his head was slowly following his progress up the stairs. It was almost facing completely backwards. Mr. Vannon staggered over to the lift and allowed himself to fall onto the wall. He felt the entire car shake, but a collapsing lift was the least of his worries at the moment. He punched his fist onto the button with the big number eight on it, which seemed to be the top floor. The gate jerked a bit as it slid closed. The moment it latched, the car lurched to life, carrying its occupant upward very slowly. He clutched his chest and took a few deep breaths. My old heart isn't built for this kind of thing, he thought. Got to calm down a bit. The metallic oily smell in the shaft was oddly soothing. It brought back memories of working at the telephone factory. Mr. Vannon watched as giant floor numbers slowly sank past him. Four, five, six, seven. The elevator stopped at the eighth floor, much more gently than it had started. The crisscrossing metal gate squeaked open. While the first floor looked like something out of the 1930s, the eighth floor was much more modern. In fact, if it weren't for the dust and cobwebs and laws of physics as he understood them, Mr. Vannon could have believed that this level was actually built the previous day. 
The room signs were made of murky red acrylic. The carpet was a cool blue, with thin lines of neon pink, green, and yellow swerving up and down it. Mr. Bannon forced himself to his feet and carefully hopped off the lift. He winched. Bruises were already forming on his arms, legs, and back from his tumble down the stairs. Once he was into the hallway, he rested a hand on the wall and took a few more deep breaths. The temporary silence was interrupted by a quiet shush coming from a room just down the hall. He grabbed his glasses from his pocket and slid them on. Room 88, just ahead of him, was open a crack. Hey, Mr. Vannon called. Who's there? I'm not afraid. The door slowly creaked open the rest of the way, but the room inside was still obscured by darkness. A soft, growling voice, deeper than anything he'd ever heard, rumbled out from across the threshold. Then why do you run? Mr. Vannon was taken aback by the sound of the voice. He felt his heart, which hadn't calmed down much at all, beat even faster now. Still, he answered back, Because I, well, I just want to go home. What is waiting for you at home? The deep voice asked. Mr. Vannon suddenly realized that all the other hotel rooms were slowly opening too. Glowing white eyes were peering out from each one, not attached to any bodies. He cleared his throat. My, my life, of course. My bed, my, my fire, my, my favorite armchair. And your wife? Buried down the street from my house. I bring her a flower every day. Mr. Vannon patted his overcoat where the marguerite daisy stayed securely in the pocket of his coat's lining. The voice rumbled in disgust or possibly in frustration. You have nothing. You cling to the last remnant of a life the rest of the world has left behind. Mr. Vannon felt a tear roll down his cheek. I, I love my wife. You can't take it from me. You live in the past, the voice growled. Return to it. All the other hotel rooms suddenly slammed shut all at once, causing a massive burst of wind to knock Mr. Vannon off balance. At the same time, the dark hooded figure from the lift shot out of room 88. In less than a second, it had cleared the length of the hallway and was on Mr. Vannon. He closed his eyes. He felt his whole body go cold and numb. A wind was blowing down the hallway, making it feel like he was choking on air. He felt himself fall backward and hit the carpet. With a soft swish sound and a little bounce. Mr. Vannon opened his eyes. He was in a hotel room. He'd landed on a king-size bed, topped with a fluffy white comforter neatly folded around the corners of the mattress. The room also wasn't dark and musty like he'd expected. The curtain was open and warm. Clean-feeling sunlight was flooding the room. Not a speck of dust or cobweb in sight. What? he sputtered, sitting up. He found himself pleasantly surprised. Not only were his bruises gone, but his joints no longer hurt at all. They felt better than they'd felt before the fall, and quite frankly, in years. What was that, dear? came a voice from the bathroom, a voice so familiar. It brought Mr. Vannon to tears. Ada? he crooned as his voice cracked. 
Mrs. Vannon came out of the bathroom with a washcloth in her hand and looked at Mr. Vannon with bright eyes. Good, you're awake. I've been waiting for a while, but I didn't want to wake you up. You needed your sleep, and you look so peaceful. Mr. Vannon stared in awe. She was just as beautiful as he remembered her, and it had been so long since he'd heard her voice. She hung her washcloth on the bathroom doorknob and rushed over to her husband with more energy than she'd had for a long time, even before her death. Don't just lay there, darling. We need to get up. We've got a busy day ahead of us. I, I, I don't... Uh, Ada? At least you've already got your coat on. Come on, let's get going. Am I? Mr. Vannon's voice trailed off. Whatever you were going to say, you can ask me on the way, she said in a cheery voice. Mrs. Vannon grabbed her husband's hand and pulled him to his feet. For the first time in longer than he could remember, he felt no stiffness. Let's go, she exclaimed. Well, wait, wait! Mr. Vannon stuffed his hand inside his coat and pulled out the flower. He was amazed that it hadn't been crushed at all in all the excitement. In fact, it almost seemed fresher than it had that morning. Mrs. Vannon put her hands over her mouth and gasped. Yellow Marguerite Daisy, my favorite, you remembered. I give you one every day, he told her. I know, darling. Thank you. He gazed lovingly into her eyes. For a moment he thought he saw them flicker red, but that was his imagination. It must have been. Nothing bad would ever happen anymore. Nothing bad would happen ever again. He held her soft, delicate hand warmly in his own rough, calloused one as they walked together out the door and into the brilliant white light. A wonderful day indeed. I hope you enjoyed A Wonderful Day by author Christopher Gideon, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the first tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Gideon. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash G-I-D-E-O-N. You'll be redirected to his profile, where he has social media to visit or read some of his more spine-tingling creations. If you decide to stop by the profile, please leave Christopher a kind word and let him know you heard about him on this show and that me, Otis Jiry, sent you. It would mean a lot to me and to Christopher. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. As for that prior story, be cautious of anything you see popping up mysteriously in town that wasn't there the day before. Especially be on the lookout for Tim Hortons. They tend to pop up when you least expect them. There's a building at Cobb University that's been there as long as anyone can remember, and as time goes by, it just gets more and more forgotten. But some stories never die. And when one young man goes to spend one hour by himself in a locked closet, it's less the ghosts that haunted the place than it is the ones that haunt the mind. Care to join him for this little excursion? Because that's where our second Christopher Gideon story 
is leading us. Without further ado, I present to you Acceptance. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Woodward Hall was empty. All the university workers had gone for the day, but it didn't matter whether the building was occupied or not. It always felt empty. The long corridors, sprinkled with muted orange lights, drained all the energy out of the building, like a dying heart desperately trying to siphon every last drop of blood from empty veins. Tiny gusts of stale, cold air would occasionally wheeze from the vents, even though the obsolete HVAC system was rarely ever turned on. Clouded panes of glass would shiver in their window frames without warning, as if trying to catch some light and glimmer like they once had so many years ago. But even they seemed to be giving up. Woodward Hall sat empty at the corner of campus, an embarrassment to its former self, an acrotic limb that should have been amputated long ago. Woodward was the first residence hall to be built at Cobb University all the way back in 1870, boasting a whopping 20 dorm rooms. As new residence halls started being built, however, the building became the least desirable option for housing. In 1902, the dorm rooms were gutted and turned into office buildings, and for a short time, Woodward Hall got a new lease on life as the grand central hub of operations at Cobb. However, as class buildings and other residence halls kept being built farther and farther away, Staff found Woodward too inconvenient to work out of. A shiny new university center was built, and Woodward Hall became the building accountants would work in when there wasn't enough room for an office at the new building. Today, just like every other day for the past 50 years, four people worked from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. in their cramped, dismal offices, stuffed behind desks they could never find the motivation to clean. Like clockwork, when the last office door closed for the day, the newest hire of the custodial staff would come through the building, decide the garbage bags in the bathrooms were still too empty to replace, sweep the dirt from outside the registrar's office to make it look like they'd done something, and lock the front door of Woodward Hall for the night. By 9 p.m., every last speck of dust that had been uprooted during the day had found its place on a new surface, ready to be ignored for the next eternity. Woodward Hall was empty and still, 
seemingly frozen in time just like it was every night. But tonight, at 2 a.m., the silence was broken by the sound of a slamming door. Sounds of shuffling footsteps chiseled against the painted cinder block, uh, like sandpaper, bouncing off the popcorn ceiling and cement floors, like an electric shock darting through a deflated artery. Moments later, voices started slithering through the abandoned halls, growing louder as they approached their destination. Finally, the voices grew clear enough to make out the words. A lot creepier than I thought it would be. The young man behind the voice sounded nervous. We can go back, said his friend, with the voice dancing on the border of concern and patronizing. Do you want to go back? No, no, it's just, it just feels weird in here. You know what they say, this building's supposed to be haunted. Yeah, you keep mentioning that. At the very end of the hallway, the two intruders came around the corner. They were both students, appearing to be roughly the same age. Bradley, the scrawny boy with the darker hair, was looking around anxiously, his eyes darting back and forth vigilantly. The other boy, Joseph, was more toned with buzzed blonde hair. His demeanor was completely the opposite of Bradley's. His eyes remained solidly fixed on the door at the end of the hallway ahead of them. A cool smirk smeared across his narrow face. Are you scared yet? he asked. I'm scared we're going to get caught, Bradley responded, teeth clenched tightly together. Relax, Brad, no one ever comes in here at night anymore. They barely even use this building during the day. Bradley quietly released the breath he didn't realize he'd been holding. He knew, just as well as Joseph did, that there was no chance of running into anyone. Even the thought of Woodward Hall having so simple as a simple security camera was laughable. But he couldn't think of any other excuses to give for wanting to leave so badly. He wouldn't dare admit to being scared during a test of courage. The boys reached the door at the end of the hall, and Joseph slowly and dramatically pushed it open. Inside was a small, narrow room, about half the size of Bradley's dorm room. Along the left wall were two side-by-side wooden closets that reached from the floor to the ceiling. On the right side was a plain wall with nothing but a bundle of metal cable hanging from a lone hook. A tiny, square window along the top of the back wall completed the atmosphere making the small storage room look both bigger and emptier. Joseph entered the room and stopped directly in front of the first of two closets. He looked at Bradley with the same smile he'd been sporting the whole night, raised his eyebrows, and tilted his head a bit. Bradley stared blankly. "'What are we doing here?' he asked. "'Do you know where we are?' "'At a closet.' "'Not just a closet.' Joseph's eyebrows lowered again, but his confident smirk stayed the same. This is the closet where they found Molly Wright's body back in 1963. People say that when they look through the windows of this building at night, they can still see her wandering the halls. Bradley gulped a little too noticeably. Yeah, yeah, I heard the stories. So this is your challenge? This is my challenge. Bradley cracked open the closet door carefully. The closet was completely empty. Even the hooks that had clearly once been drilled into the inside of the double doors had been removed. He knew what Joseph expected him to do. 
How long? he asked. One hour, said Joseph as he lit up the display of his digital watch. Just an hour. Bradley hesitated, wondering if he should just cut his losses and go home. But as much as he pretended he was doing this because Joseph challenged him to test his courage, there was more at stake than his pride. Joseph must have seen the uncertainty in Bradley's eyes because he finally flattened his smile into a more serious, almost deadpan expression. Look, Bradley, you don't have to do this. I won't tell anyone you changed your mind if you're just trying to prove something. No, no, it's okay, Bradley interrupted. I'll do it. You sure? Bradley gulped again, not bothering to hide it this time. Yeah, he declared with confidence that surprised even him. Okay, Joseph said, still with the same expressionless look on his face. Bradley opened the closet door a little more, just wide enough to squeeze through. He squatted down in the corner of the closet, hugging his knees to his chest, and closed his eyes for a moment before looking back up at Joseph. You'll be back in an hour, he asked. Yeah, I promise. You want me to lock the... Lock me in. Okay. Joseph carefully swung the door shut, pulled a padlock out of the breast pocket of his flannel shirt, and secured it around the tarnished metal handles. Inside the closet, Bradley's eyes were wide open, staring into the darkness. Even though he could still feel all four sides of the closet, he suddenly got the sense that he was sitting in a void all alone, with no walls, no ceilings, no skies, and no ground. A soft, cool breeze settled around his face. I'll be back in an hour, came Joseph's slightly muffled voice from a few inches outside the door. After a few seconds of waiting silently for a response that never came, he took a step away from the closet and started walking calmly away. Bradley focused on the footsteps as they grew more and more distant, until finally he could no longer hear them. Feeling like he had just dropped from the end of a rope onto a cave floor, Bradley released his shaky breath, loosened the grip on his legs, rested his head on the wall of the closet behind him, closed his eyes and embraced the darkness. Tap, tap. Bradley twitched violently and gasped a breath of stagnant, dusty air. Was someone knocking on the closet door? Or had he dreamt that? Had he even fallen asleep? How long had he been in here? He tried to listen for any further noises in the storage room outside the door, but all he could hear was his own raspy breaths. Without any other stimuli, his breathing seemed so much louder. He clasped his hand over his mouth and nose. He hoped that if someone was there, they hadn't already heard him. But the breathing didn't stop. In fact, it started growing louder. Bradley's heart twisted in place. That wasn't coming from the storage room. It was just inches away from Bradley's face, inside the closet with him. All of his muscles leapt at once as he jolted into a somewhat upright position. The breathing strained and grew aggressive. Bradley threw all of his weight into the doors, praying that the ancient handles would break so he could escape. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, the doors swung open. The padlock fell to the floor with a heavy clank. Bradley tumbled onto the floor of the storage room and looked inside the closet where he had just been. 
was empty. He allowed himself to catch his breath before shutting the closet. To his surprise, both handles were exactly as they'd been when he and Joseph had arrived. He looked down at the padlock, which was still lying on the floor, unlatched. Did Joseph not lock it? he wondered. Before he had a chance to decide how he felt about Joseph's lie, something else caught his eye. Through the open storage room door, Bradley saw two girls talking cheerfully in the hallway, apparently completely oblivious to their surroundings. Their skin was a pale gray, and a soft blue light seemed to be surrounding them. He could clearly hear their voices as they chatted, but for some reason he couldn't make out what they were saying. Words were clear and crisp and clearly English, but they meant absolutely nothing to him. Bradley slowly pushed himself to his feet and brushed the dirt and sand from his palms. Uh, hello? he asked nervously. The girls didn't react, so he cleared his throat and tried again a little louder. Uh, hello? Can you hear me? Hello? The girls continued their conversation, not granting Bradley so much as an annoyed side look. Bradley suddenly became acutely aware of his heart pounding in his chest. He could feel every muscle in his body tense up, every hair stand at alert. He needed to get out of this building. Now! He took another stiff step toward the girls. The moment his foot touched the floor outside the storage room, without warning, both girls' heads whipped around to face Bradley. They weren't talking anymore. They were glaring silently right at him. Bradley gasped and rocked back on his heels. His eyes shot back and forth between the two girls. He knew he should have been afraid, but he wasn't. Actually, the only thing he felt at all was extreme embarrassment, like he'd just walked into the wrong classroom. Just go, screamed the voice in his head. Bradley walked toward the girls, again, never taking his eyes off them. Their heads turned slowly to follow Bradley's movements as he pressed his back to the wall and squeezed past. He continued backing down the hallway until he was about 20 feet from the pair, stared at them one last time, then spun around on his heels and bolted down the cold cement hallway. As Bradley turned the corner at the end of the hall, he was stopped dead in his tracks. Two girls and a boy, each with skin as pale as the other pair, were standing in the hallway chatting and giggling blissfully. As Bradley watched them enjoying themselves, he felt a strong rage boiling in his chest. It was a feeling he was unfamiliar with. Before he knew what he was doing, he clenched his fists and shouted, Who are you? Just like the two girls before, all three students stopped talking and snapped their heads in Bradley's direction, watching him with cold, unblinking eyes. He felt his eyes start to burn with tears. He blinked quickly, shook his head, and ran forward. As he passed them, they bunched together and started whispering excitedly. The whispers echoed down the hall after him, growing louder and fiercer as he ran. When he dashed past two more ghostly students, they also began whispering to each other. There were more than five people whispering behind Bradley's back as he bolted for the exit. Each intensified. S sliced into his flesh. Each magnified T pierced through his skull. 
must have been a hundred, maybe even a thousand. He felt like his ears would melt off and his eyes would pop out if the sound got any louder. But it didn't matter. There was the exit right ahead of him. And after the three biggest strides he'd ever taken in his life, he was there. He let his whole body collide as the handle clicked and the door swung open and a harsh whispering finally stopped. He wasn't outside. He was back in the storage room at the end of the desolate hall. The closet door was still open and inside, rocking back and forth, weary with an expression of pure terror, was himself. Another Bradley. Bradley looked around instinctively to make sure there wasn't anyone else there before tentatively approaching the closet to get a closer look at the other Bradley. He'd only taken one step before he felt his foot make contact with something small and heavy. He'd forgotten about the padlock lying on the floor. He heard a quiet scraping sound followed by a gentle thud as the padlock hit the bottom of the closet. The other, suddenly frozen in place, its face still contorted in fear, Bradley held his breath. Everything was perfectly quiet for a few seconds. Then, in a split second, the other spun its head to direct its dead stare at Bradley, the same way all the ghostly students had in the hallway. However, instead of whispering, the other opened its mouth impossibly wide and released a horrifying, low-pitched, guttural shriek that filled the small room with utter dread. The sound jump-started all of Bradley's reflexes again. The fear that had slowly ebbed as he ventured further from the closet suddenly came crashing back. Bradley tumbled backward and fell to the ground, hitting his head on the wall behind him. Before he felt the pain, he was already back on his feet and running through the door again. The hallway was empty this time, no ghostly figures blocking the way. In no time, he made it to the first corner of the hallway. Bradley nearly slipped as he made the sharp right turn, but he dropped his hand to the gravel trail below and caught himself just in time to avoid sliding into a tree. Among the sounds of displaced dirt and rock, he heard a set of footsteps charging toward him from behind. Guiler was already taking advantage of Bradley's error to gain the lead. She grabbed a tree branch to prevent herself from slipping in the same place he had and swung around the corner gracefully, landing on both feet and bounding the last few yards to their makeshift finish line before Bradley even had regained his balance. Bradley jogged over to Kyler, who was sitting on the long, flat rock where they had first kissed. I let you win, he panted. Uh-huh, Kyler smirked. Yeah, that, that wipeout? Totally fake. Called it. Bradley chuckled, plopped himself down next to Kyler, and let his head drop into her lap. He stared contently up at the blood-orange canopy above. He even dared to feel a little happy. With so much that had gone wrong in his life, this was one moment he knew was safe from the past. Kyler brushed her hand carelessly through Bradley's moppy hair. I love it out here, she remarked, as if she had been reading his mind. It's so peaceful, away from everything. Bradley sat up and puffed out his chest. I always feel this way when I'm with you, Kyler, my love, he proclaimed in the most overly dramatic voice he could muster. Kyler laughed and gave him a little push. 
Stop it, Bradley. I'm being serious. Bradley laughed too and said, I know, I know, I'm sorry. She leaned her head against his shoulder, nuzzling into his neck. Bradley gently caressed her arm with one hand, while his other hand absent-mindedly rubbed the B.W. and K.F. carving they'd engraved into the rock that summer. It's really relaxing, isn't it? He mused. It feels surreal, almost like being in a dream. No, it doesn't, Kyler interjected. Bradley pulled his head away from her just enough to look into her eyes. No, it doesn't? No, this is better than a dream. Bradley smiled and opened his mouth to say something just as romantically corny, but was interrupted by a soft symphony of bells jingling from his pocket. Crap! He muttered as he leaned back and stuck his hand into the pocket of his jeans. You brought your phone with you? Kyler exclaimed, half annoyed and half amused. I didn't think I'd get a call. He pulled his phone out of his pocket and checked the display for the caller ID. He frowned and raised one eyebrow. It's my brother's girlfriend, he said, barely moving his lips. Why would she be calling you? Bradley shrugged and hit the green button on the screen. Hey, Anna, what's up? He asked. Bradley, it's Anna. Her voice leaked through the phone like it had been wrung from a cheap paper towel. Upon hearing the stress hidden behind her voice, Bradley's eyes shot open wide and he leaned forward, stiffening his back. I know that, he said in a tone that matched Anna's urgency. What's going on? Are you okay? Um, Bradley, there's been an accident. His lips tightened and wrapped against the front teeth so hard they felt like they were going to shatter. His breath became rigid and short. Is he okay? He was. And your parents, they were hit by... Brad, they won't let me in, but I think he's really bad. Bradley stared straight ahead. He couldn't feel his phone in his hand. Had it fallen? He didn't care. He heard Kyler saying his name, but he wasn't sure how to move. He couldn't feel the ground beneath his feet or the rock he was sitting on. He felt himself shrink inside his own head like his life was a movie being played at a theater and he had stood up to walk out into an empty lobby. His body was just a building he'd been living in, a massive prison with no guards and no inmates except for himself, a space station floating through the void so far out that not even the stars were visible, just black nothingness. Even the space station was gone. With a jolt, Bradley snapped back to reality. His ears felt like they were stuffed with cotton, but his vision came back to him. He was sitting on the stone in the woods with Kyler. This wasn't where he was when he'd gotten the phone call. That wasn't even the conversation he'd had with Anna. None of this was right, was it? He couldn't remember. He didn't care. He wanted to continue his happy memory. He turned his head to look at Kyler. Her eyes were wider than he'd ever seen them, almost hovering just outside their sockets and pointed in two different directions. Her mouth was gaping open at least a foot wide in a silent scream. As Bradley looked into Kyler's mouth, the sound all suddenly rushed back to him. Her fierce shriek pierced through his ears and rattled the back of his eyes. From the phone still in his hand, 
He could hear Anna making the same terrifying cry. Bradley jumped to his feet and ran back through the forest the way he and Kyler had come. Their screams followed him, unchanging, as he dodged between the trees, ducked under branches, and hurtled over rocks. Finally, when he thought his head was going to explode, he charged through a brush and came out in the middle of a wide, beautiful, grassy clearing. The shrieking stopped instantaneously. A peaceful whooshing sound cleansed his mind as a gentle wind shuffled through the branches. The careless chirping of birds hopping through the auburn leaves tickled his ears. The soft dirt sagged a little under his feet, just enough to remind him that it was there to hold him up. Bradley let himself smile. But there was another sound now. Voices, dozens of them, coming from everywhere around him. Bradley spun around to face the trees again, but the trees weren't there anymore. The forest had disappeared, and in its place was a crowd of students gathered on the lawn in front of one of the campus buildings. They were all talking and laughing. Some of them were making funny faces or dancing in place or playfully shoving their neighbors. Bradley was furious. He didn't know why. He didn't care. Someone walked up to Bradley from behind and took his hand. He looked over to see who it was and saw Kyler's face, completely drained of expression. Irritated, he pulled his hand away, but Kyler grabbed it again and squeezed it forcefully. Without looking at him, she began walking forward toward the crowd. Bradley tried to pull back, but her grip was too tight. Resigned, he followed her into the sea of students. Not one person looked at him or moved out of his way as he bumped into them. They continued laughing, happy to ignore the skinny, gangly boy forcing his way past. Kyler pulled Bradley out of the crowd and continued guiding him toward the building. Bradley recognized it now. It was Woodward Hall. The further away they got from the crowd, the faster the sun flew across the sky. By the time they made it to the tiny side entrance, it was the middle of the night again. Kyler opened the door and pulled Bradley in, still staring blankly forward. She took him up a flight of stairs, down a long corridor, and into a dark, empty classroom. They approached the desk, just barely visible in the shadow. Bradley sat down behind the desk, and Kyler finally let go. He stared at her, now just as emotionless as she was. She was already walking back to the door. As she stepped out into the hallway, she turned around, grabbed the brass door handle, and slowly swung it shut. Bradley mindlessly tucked his legs up to his chin as he was plunged into total darkness. After sitting still for almost an eternity, Bradley finally released his legs. The floor was now level with the seat of the chair. The room had closed in to confine Bradley in the smallest space possible without him noticing. He felt the wall to his left move ever so slightly as he bumped into it, and from the other side of the wall he heard the soft thump of a padlock on wood. He was back in the closet. Where was Joseph? It must have been more than an hour. He gave one feeble attempt to open the door, but gave up when it didn't move more than an inch. He sighed, ready to accept that he'd never leave this tiny space. However, accompanying his breath was a distant voice. This wasn't a student like every other specter he had seen. 
This sounded like a grown man. As it grew louder, he could make out what it was saying. You just have to be strong, Bradley. I know you don't want to be here, but the doctor thinks it's a good idea. Bradley recognized the voice in a sharp pain sliced through his chest. Dad? You know, going to therapy doesn't make you weak. It doesn't mean you're crazy. Just like having a job doesn't mean you're poor. You understand that. Bradley nodded in the darkness. Yeah, yeah, Dad, I, I understand that. He turned his head. He was sitting in a chair in the middle of a therapist's office. On the chair next to him was his father. Bradley's eyes welled with tears at the sight, but he ignored the feeling and continued his thought. What I don't understand is why the doctor thinks I have to go to this stupid therapist in the first place. Because the doctor thinks it's a good idea, Dad repeated. And I agree with him. You've had a very traumatic experience, Bradley. Bradley wanted to argue, but seeing his father's stern yet comforting eyes gazing back at him, he acquiesced. I know, I know, he said. But Dad, that was three months ago. Besides, I'm tough. Dad looked sadly back at Bradley without saying anything. He always told me I was tough. Bradley muttered while looking down at the floor. Dad put his hand on Bradley's shoulder. Being tough isn't the answer to everything. Remember the rhyme your mother taught you? And your brother, when Grandpa died? Just because you're not strong, it doesn't mean you're weak. Someone cleared his throat at the door to the office. Dr. Cobb! Bradley jumped a little bit in his seat. Hello there, Bradley. Am I interrupting something? Dr. Cobb asked in a frustratingly calming voice. Bradley glanced over at the empty space next to his chair. No, I was just talking to myself, he stammered. Dr. Cobb smiled thoughtfully as he sat in the chair opposite Bradley. Ah, yes, I like to talk to myself, too. Sometimes it helps to think out loud, doesn't it? Bradley grimaced and looked down at the floor again. The doctor was quick to fill the silence. That was a very nice poem you were reciting. May I hear the rest of it? Bradley remained silent, staring at a spot on the floor where the carpet was just starting to tear. After a moment, he opened his mouth and chanted, Just because you're not strong, it doesn't mean you're weak. I envied the people who are able to cry while I can only speak. That's very nice, Dr. Cobb said gently. Did your mother write that herself? Bradley nodded. What does it mean to you? It means that sometimes it's better to cry than to be strong. And do you agree with that? Bradley shrugged. I might add on to that definition, if I may. Dr. Cobb asked. Bradley shrugged again, so he continued. I think it also means that if you're holding in your feelings, then you need to release them. Would you say so? I guess. I think that poem also has something to do with the five stages of grief. Do you remember what I said about the stages of grief? Bradley finally looked into the doctor's eyes. I know denial is one of them. Dr. Cobb nodded. Yes, the first stage is denial, and the sense of isolation. The second is anger. I remember you telling me about your anger with everyone who looked happy while you were still mourning the loss of your parents and your brother. That's not an uncommon reaction. 
The third stage of grief is known as bargaining, which is essentially looking for ways to take control of your situation. And the fourth stage, do you know what the fourth stage is, Bradley? Bradley looked down at the floor again. Depression? Dr. Cobb gave a quick smile. Yes, that's right. And that alone has a broad span of definitions. Bradley wrinkled his eyebrows. I remember talking about this before. You told me that depression was the stage I'm in right now. I didn't tell you anything. You decided that for yourself, remember? Uh, not really. Bradley admitted. He barely remembered any of his sessions with Dr. Cobb. They were all one massive blur. In fact, every time he tried to remember anything regarding therapy, the memories seemed more and more altered. Dr. Cobb broke Bradley's pensive trance, asking, Do you remember what the next stage is? Bradley shook his head rigidly. This was a load of crap. It wasn't helping. He wished people would stop trying to help. The doctor leaned forward in his chair and stared directly into Bradley's eyes. The latter had no choice but to return his gaze. In an icy, rattling voice, Dr. Cobb whispered, It's acceptance. It felt like a cannonball to the stomach. Bradley winced as the word echoed painfully in his head, scrambling his brain like an egg beater. He broke eye contact with Dr. Cobb and slammed his eyes shut in agony. When he opened them again, the office around him was twisting. The chair he was sitting on shriveled up and trembled under his weight, barely holding him up. The forest green couch, neatly pushed against the wall, was now blood red and writhing in agony. The wall cracked and the cheerful baby blue paint flaked away to reveal a layer of crusty orange underneath. Even the lights dissolved into a deep scarlet, making the office look more like a dark room. Angry black shadows flickered across Cobb's marooned face. His mouth distorted into a sour smile. It's acceptance, Bradley. Acceptance. Would you just accept the fact that your whole family is dead? Bradley clenched his teeth in disgust and fury until he tasted blood. Would you just accept that you're never going to see them again? Stop it! Bradley hissed through his gritted teeth. Why don't you just accept everything and move on, Bradley? It can't be that hard, can it? I'm a doctor, after all. I should know these things. It's easy to get past these feelings. Just accept it. Cobb roared the last words so loudly that the entire room pulsed in response. An intense, animalistic rage boiled up in Bradley's chest. Stop! He shouted back. Cobb ignored him. Oh, Bradley, no one knows what you're going through, do they? He mocked in an overly mopey voice. You see, people like me, we can try to understand. We can pretend that we do. But no one ever understands exactly how you feel. Remember your classmates? They were afraid to even talk to you when they saw you. They just stared at you like you were a circus freak. They couldn't accept you, could they? Please, stop, Bradley whimpered. The doctor smiled pleasantly. Did you see those kids on their bicycles? They were laughing. His smile suddenly warped back into a malicious scowl. 
How dare they laugh? How dare they have fun? Don't they know that you're suffering? Linden closed to Bradley's ear and whispered, Can't they show a little respect? Please. And that woman who bought a chocolate bar at the store, what was she going to do with that chocolate? Eat it? Why? Because it tastes good. She's buying something because it tastes good. And it's going to make her happy that it tastes good. And it just kills you inside. Because you can see how meaningless that happiness really is. Bradley sank deeper into the decayed armchair, sobbing so hard he couldn't breathe. Cobb's voice rumbled deeper with every word, his breath searing Bradley's skin like scalding steam. And the employees in the restaurant. They don't understand why you started crying when you tried to return the napkins you didn't use. You knew they couldn't reuse them, but you wanted to give them back so badly, and you didn't even know why it mattered, but it did. And they threw them away and forgot about them. That sounds familiar, right, Bradley? Bradley felt his stomach was squirming up his throat. He gagged and coughed, but managed to squeeze out a few words. I, I can't. I'm sorry. Mom, I can't make it. I, I, I can't. Cobb's horrid, twisted smile widened even more, so much so that his eyes had to retreat deeper into their sockets to make room. He became quiet, his throat quivering with every soft, hateful word. What you wouldn't give to tugger one more time, to throw one more baseball to your brother, to go for one more drive with dear old dad. No, no. Nobody understands what goes on in your head, Bradley. Nobody knows what you do to yourself every day. Nobody knows that you tear yourself apart like this. And nobody knows because you hide it so well. Please. Bradley sobbed. Please get out of here. Please stop. All you have to do is stop thinking about it and you'll be accepted again. Stop reminding yourself of how it feels every single day and you'll be normal. But you can't do that, can you? because you still can't accept it. Bradley wasn't looking anymore as Cobb hissed the last few words. He was rocking back and forth in the armchair, his eyes pressed into his knees. He heard the doctor's footsteps calmly retreat toward the door. He looked up just in time to see Cobb's hand flick the light switch and disappear out of the room. The instant the lights went out, the fierce red colors disappeared, replaced by an abysmal blue. Bradley tried to leap from the chair to escape, but he couldn't move. There was some unseen force keeping him in place. As he pounded against the invisible wall and screamed for help, he noticed a figure walk up behind him to his left. Bradley's dad put a hand on his shoulder. The hand was cold and heavy like clay. Bradley risked a look into his face. His eyes were nothing but empty, carved-out sockets. His mouth was sewn shut. On his cheek, ghostly white makeup was just barely flaking. No! Bradley hollered, standing up to the chair and throwing his entire body into the wall. For a brief moment, he felt a pair of wooden doors that he couldn't see give way just a bit but his next blow was met with the same immovable force field he'd been fighting with before. Someone else approached Bradley's chair, stopping right next to Dad. 
His mother stood lifelessly next to his father, her face stitched and hollow just like his. Bradley kept struggling desperately with his invisible prison. With each strike, Dr. Cobb's office would flicker out of view, replaced with the interior of the closet in the basement of Woodward Hall. Between blows, he was stuck in his chair. Help! Please! Somebody help me! Bradley shouted with all the strength he had left in his lungs. Joseph, let me out! Another figure emerged from the darkness of Dr. Cobb's office and solemnly marched toward Bradley, coming to a rest between Mom and Dad. The three of them stood morbidly still and stared blankly past Bradley at the wall across from his chair. Bradley fell silent and stared forward at the same spot. Mounted on the wall was a small mirror, positioned perfectly to frame the four people in the room like a family photo. Bradley was center in front of the others. His father stood proudly behind to his left shoulder. His face, as it appeared in the mirror, wasn't distorted like it was in real life. It was exactly how Bradley remembered it. His mother, over his right shoulder, was done up in her Sunday best, wearing a generous amount of makeup with small but vibrant earrings hanging from her ears. And directly between them, with both his hands on Bradley's shoulders, was Joseph. He stood at attention with a ghost of a smile cutting across his face. His eyes narrowed to give him the same cool expression Bradley always remembered. For a moment, everything felt calm. Bradley watched his reflection as his horrified face began relaxing with a blend of apathy and exhaustion. Finally, feeling peace, he turned his head to look at his father. Dad was staring back down at Bradley, but he didn't look like he had in the mirror. His eyes were still gone, his skin was peeling, and his flesh was dripping like hot wax to the floor. His skeletal smile draped beneath the curtain of blood was violently twitching, causing his teeth to jut outward. All of Bradley's panic rushed back to him at once. His ears filled with sinister whispers of the students he'd passed in the basement of Woodward Hall the petrifying screams of Kyler and Anna, and the patronizing words of Dr. Cobb. Bradley let out a cry of rage and despair and slammed his head as hard as he could into the invisible wall around his chair. He expected everything to go black. He hoped everything would go black. Instead, he toppled out of the chair in Dr. Cobb's office and landed on the cold, gritty floor of the tiny storage room in Woodward Hall. Joseph was standing above him, holding the padlock in his hand and looking worriedly down at Bradley. He dropped quickly down to his knees and wrapped Bradley in a warm embrace. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have left you, he whispered shakily. Bradley didn't even hear over the sounds of his own jagged breaths and panicked sobs. I can't, I can't go on, he sputtered. Please don't make me go on. Please don't leave. Please don't leave me alone. Joseph rocked his brother gently. You don't have to go on, he reassured. I won't leave you. I'm not going anywhere ever again. I don't want to accept anything. I don't want things to change. I don't want to be alone. You're not alone. I'm still here. I don't want to accept it. There's nothing to accept. I'm right here. I don't want to be alone. You're not alone. You don't have to be alone. 
You'll never be alone. You'll never be alone. You'll never be alone. Bradley wanted to believe it so badly, but as everyone kept reminding him, he was alone. Pretending hadn't changed anything, he couldn't seem to stop. He rocked back and forth on the floor, alone in the empty building, chanting the words in Joseph's voice, imagining his big brother was there to help guide him through the horrors in his own head. You'll never be alone. Mom was gone. You'll never be alone. Dad was gone. You'll never be alone. Joseph was gone. You'll never be alone. Bradley Woodward was alone. Bradley Woodward was empty. I hope you enjoyed Acceptance by author Christopher Gideon, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Gideon. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash G-I-D-E-O-N. If you'd like to know more about him or just have a sample of his wares at creepypastastories.com, this is the place to be. As a reminder, if you decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving them a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let them know you heard about them on this program and that Otis Jiry sent you means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Christopher would much appreciate it also. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky. And get some sleep, if you can. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.